Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview inspiring and fascinating women who talk about their projects as well as their own lives as evolving women. I'm your host, Nicole Christina. And if you like the podcast, you'll love my newly updated companion online course, Zestful Aging, Simple and Sustainable Habits for Health and Longevity. Learn more at NicoleChristina.com. Well, I have my coffee in my hand and my little Jack Russell Sparky right beside me. So let's begin. Today we have Dr. Jane Barrett, who's the Secretary General of the International Federation on Aging, which is an organization in formal relations with the United Nations and the World Health Organization. With over 35 years experience in the field of aging and disability across sectors, she brings to audiences her insight into the new frontier of thinking and action with and on behalf of older people. The recent IFA 14th Global Conference on Aging, which I was very happy to be a part of, was in Toronto and attracted some 1,200 delegates from 74 countries, focusing on themes such as healthy aging, ageism, addressing inequalities, and age-friendly environment toward the who decade of healthy aging. Jane, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nicole. It's lovely to be with you and your uh, listeners. I just wanted to start by asking, have you recovered yet? I, I, I don't think anyone ever recovers from the joy and the passion of, of being amongst uh, interested people in the field that you're passionate about. Mm. Well... You know, it, there was so much energy and, you know, it was so interesting, but just sitting down next to delegates, and I don't know if it's because, you know, we're all on the same page and we're really working for healthy aging. There was such a warmth and, and connection amongst the delegates. Is that is that typical? It's typical of our conferences, Nicole, and, and there's some just wonderful sort of snippets that that will remain with me always. And one of them was a, an older delegate who came up to me on the first day and thanked me because someone generously donated money so she could attend. And I went to the registration desk and there was no badge for her and there was no one that had donated money for her. And then the next day she came up again and said, thank you so much. And then I realized that this older person was from Toronto and she had some cognitive changes. And so I welcomed her warmly, paid for her registration, and on the last day, she gave me one of the warmest hugs and thanked me. And that's what IFA conferences are all about. It's not only the experts and thought leaders, it's everyone being interested in this common journey called growing older. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, that's such a beautiful story. Mm. I mean, mm. it really is sort of the sort of the micro in in the macro. Like mm. here, here's who we're serving. Here's here's who we're caring for, and we are this person. Mm. Uh, look, we are, and and also the volunteers. 
many of whom were older people, but also some younger people, and having them actually be part of the conference because they're really the glue. And some of them were older people that had, were not in paid work anymore, but they were there learning and interested and having the opportunity to, um, to talk to other delegates. Mm-hmm. Mm, I see. So you're really, it sounds like you're very uh, in tune and aware of the individuals and, and as you say, the glue that brings this conference together, in addition to obviously uh, the research that is coming from all over the globe, all over different academic places, and mm. you're sort of doing two things at once. We are. We're highlighting some of those important um, subject areas that sometimes are not talked about very much, like older prisoners and older homeless people, but also hearing, you know, the, the best and the most innovative world practices, such as Dr. Lozano, who was talking about, you know, his work in neurosurgery and, and dampening the effect of the Parkinson tremor um, so we have a wide range, but the common element is about improving the lives of older people. Mm -hmm. And I can, I can hear the pride in your voice as you talk about this. What are the challenges of running a, an international conference? It's complicated, and we always want to serve everybody's needs, and sometimes we're not able to do that successfully all, all the time. Um, but if we have the common goal of information shared brings greater emphasis to common issues, then I think that we're able to deliver a conference that is affordable, accessible and brings new knowledge. And for IFA, it's also about post-conference and we will have a two-year program of education coming from the conference to set us up for the next conference. So. It's not that, you know, we stop right on the 10th of October, but we use that information gathered mm -hmm. to extend the outreach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There were, were some talk about all of these studies and then the concern of, okay, we, we found some really useful information. Where does it go? How does it get yeah. handed down? I yeah. see. Do you have any particular pet projects or, 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 or pet um interests within healthy aging? I think the pet project has to be yourself to begin with um, because if you actually uh, walk the talk instead of just talking I think that really helps you understand some of the real challenges that uh, older people experience. Um, so pet projects within healthy aging would be looking after myself and looking after and caring for my immediate friends and families as they grow older. I think, but I'm also curious about, you know, the, the new revo revolution of technology and what that will bring to the whole process. And I think my, my passions um, change over time as new things come on board. But at the heart of it is about dignity and it's about respect for people as they grow older. Mm-hmm. How do you walk the talk, Jane? What are the kinds of things you do in your life? 
every day I'm off to the gym mm -hmm. um, and it's so that's the physical part of my my health and well-being mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know lifting weights and uh, doing my cardio uh, but also making sure that I have all of those preventative health checks but that's just the physical I think that the mental part is to you know, we talk about this work-life balance and I can say, Nicole, I'm not very good at that because I'm so passionate about what I do. Mm, you're um, not the first person I've heard <laughs> that from. But, but I, I, I get up very early in the morning, so three or four. Mm. And, uh, and that's my time when I can, I can work and think and, and look around me and be at peace with who I am and what I'm doing. Um, and I think there's also a spiritual part and, uh, and that's been particularly important to me this year um, with my immediate family. So I, I take much more um, attention, you know, to, to nature, flowers and, and the breeze, and, and they're important to me. So it's physical and mental, emotional and spiritual. They're all part of me growing older in a more healthy way. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about flowers and being outside, is that a place where you practice some of your spirituality? Oh, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. I have this particular laneway that I ride my motorbike down every single day. And it's got trees on both sides and it's cool and it's calm. And that's, uh, and that it, it gives me such joy. And, mm -hmm. you know, as we grow older, having a purpose and being joyful are, are really important places to be, to find that place, even when things don't feel so good in one's life. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right. I, I've, you know, that's a consistent theme with mm. people who, you know, really study and experience um, mm. uh, the, the aging and how do they how do you feel about your life and what needs to change? Mm. And, you know, one thing I ask a lot of my guests who are writers or, you know, doing a lot of uh, intense work, good work, but also, um, you know, needing to use your brain and your whole, you know, your energy. How do you know when your kind of your, your well is starting to dry up a little bit are there any particular guidelines you use that oh my goodness it's time to get back to uh taking a walk or going outside or riding my bike what are the signs to you that you're doing too much it's probably sleep my my sleep is is much more disconnected so i wake many times um and i think it's also when I'm not paying attention to things and people around me. So my job is that I've got to pay close attention to relationships because relationships make business, they make life. And if I'm not paying attention to them, that's when I need to stop and, and take stock. Um, so it's those kinds of both the physical but also relationships. I, I pay a lot of attention to keeping in touch with people that I care about, you know, family, friends, colleagues, just mm -hmm. checking in because checking in also helps me to check in with me. Um, so it's, it's making that, it's not
not an effort really, Nicole. It's just part of me. Yeah, it's part mm-hmm. of me. I yeah. could tell when you were moderating the panel that mm. uh, that I sat in on that you had a genuine um, uh, fondness and connection for the panel members. I, you were you were being playful with them. Mm. Uh, you obviously you know had interacted with them in the past, but I I could see that you were. Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? It, you were completely present. You were really there and you were seeing them. That was my experience. Well, that, that's, a, that's a really lovely reflection. Thank you for that. Um, and I, look, I enjoy being with people and, and hearing what they have to say. So you're right. Um, you know, one of my loves is, is um, you know, moderating and being around people that have a com- common interest. Um, because they often have the same belief belief systems mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that you have, and and I find it's um, you know no, nothing in life is too difficult because I wake up happy. You mm-hmm. um, know, I've I've mm-hmm. taught myself that it will be all right in the darkest times. You will find some light as long as you just sit and wait long enough. Mm, that's that's very inspiring and you know as you well know uh post-middle age is a difficult time and my focus is on women and I'm sure Mm. men have their own particular issues but Mm. there's so much recalibration and so much adjustment and I feel like you know, I'm talking to people who are facing retirement and mm. saying, I've been a mother. I've been sort of a professional mother or a teacher or, you know, what have you. And that's all I, that's, that's done. Mm. I don't even know where to start. And it can feel like a tremendous blank and a tremendous loss and confusion. So I think that that observation, you know, it might be really dark, but you you, you have to hang in there. Mm. That's very helpful. Well, do you know, I, I, I have the great honor of having a, a mum who's 91 years of age. Mm-hmm. And, and I talk with her twice a day, sometimes three times. She's in Australia. And she always says to me, just wait, be patient. You'll find the solution. The solution will come to you. The opportunity will come to you. Mm. And that's that's absolutely true. Sometimes we we push mm-hmm. in fear Striving. or concern. Yep. Yep. And sometimes it's worth just just putting a pause on it for a while and just um and just watching and waiting and it's quite often that the solution or the opportunity just um comes comes to you in a different way that you expected. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to talk to you about this as somebody who is a scholar and, you know, very involved in research, on the cutting mm. edge of research, and yet you're telling me it's not all brain work. It's not all an intellectual problem to be solved. No, it's not. No. The academics would like it to be. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and evidence is so very important and it's essential. However, um, you know, if someone is not able to drive themselves to their appointment to get the necessary treatment, then 
the system is broken further up the line because we fail to recognize that older woman living by herself. Mm-hmm. Because because neighbors, you know, when I was growing up as a, a wee one, you know, I knew all my neighbors. I knew, you know, Mrs. Opie next door and Mrs. Carol and Mrs. Thames and, and we grew up in that community and uh, communities are quite different now. So um, I think evidence is essential and we need to look at also the social structure in which we live. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. How did you start getting interested in doing aging research? Has that always been something that you've thought a lot about or was there sort of a turn in your career that led you here? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I, um, I've got a bit of a checkered background. I've, I've done all sorts of things, but my main professional interests have been in aging and disability. And it was primarily because my brother was born with a heart condition. And that was because mum at that time came in contact with someone that had measles. Mm -hmm. So so Paul had a heart condition. And so in my early academic career, I studied caregiving and carers because I was one of those child, child carers. And then that led me to be curious and interested in the kind of models of services that supported older people. And since then, we've, we've really moved such a long way down the track in the development of models of services, but also starting to look at this whole area of ageism and age discrimination. You know, those groups of people that are marginalised and isolated for different reasons, like older women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... It's been a, it's been a, um, it's been an easy journey, um, and I've loved every minute of it. And it really reflects, I think, Nicole, our own life. Mm-hmm. You know, I was I was talking to my mum earlier this week, saying it's the cycle of life. You know, I see my nieces and nephews having their own children. And this year in particular, I went back to Australia and with my mum and siblings cared for my dad until he died. And so you, you, if you're very lucky, you have the opportunity of being and seeing this whole life cycle. Mm-hmm. And so I feel very privileged to, to be part of this process still, living and also researching and advocating. Mm-hmm. Are you finding that outside of sort of the bubble of people who think and care a lot about healthy aging, are you finding that sort of the the average person is thinking more about this in ways of planning for end of life? Is that is that your sense, or do you feel like we're we still have quite a ways to go to acknowledge and accept? our deaths. I would like to say that we have moved forward, but I'm not convinced that we have. Still think that we're dealing with this abruptness of um, leaving paid work and not being valued as part of society. Um, None of us want to die. And I don't think that we're very good at that whole process of what do we do in the later years of life or days. 
Um, we all want to live in a healthy, positive way um, to our death. And we all want, I think, a good death. Um, and if we're able to attain that, then I think that's, um, that's remarkable. I think, you know, we also, Nicole, um, don't often have these conversations about dying and death. It's not it's not that coffee table conversation, is it? Usually, <laughs> well, uh, there there are places that do I, that, but I do. think there are very few. <laughs> yeah, there are very few. I yeah. think I think I remember yeah. seeing something that there were death cafes or yeah, dying right. cafes. Yes. Yeah, um, and you know there wouldn't there probably wouldn't be a rush for those. <laughs> Um, but there are several seats empty at the cafe table. Well, that's that's right, you know, and and uh, you kind of think, well, how can we how can we make this a different conversation? And I think if we probably talked about, you know, how can we have a good death, mm-hmm. um, that that may help us. Um, it's a work in progress to dying and the conversation. Um, mm. Because we fear, you know, the inevitable and we fear that we're not going to have a good death. So, yeah. Has there, any, um, has there been any new research that's come out in the last few years that has affected your personal life and the way you think about death and dying? You know, I think one thing that, um, one thing that I think is remarkable is this whole area of cognitive reserve, this brain health stuff, mm-hmm. that even in our 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, we can still have the opportunity to stimulate our brain in ways that um, it doesn't deteriorate. You know, and I think that is remarkable. And, I, and, and that was certainly demonstrated through my, through my father's last few weeks that he studied something called neuroplasticity, mm-hmm. um, the setting up of new pathways in the brain, and he functioned very well right up until the night that he sang to my mum and he died the next day. Mm-hmm. And so I think the whole area of cognitive reserve, brain health, is very exciting. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I saw there will be a conference. Is it in, in the Netherlands? Yeah, um, in on Co- Copenhagen. Copenhagen, in, yeah. Yep, yep in, on, in, in March next year. And that's affiliated with the IFA, um, yes, is that correct? Yes, that's right. That's our meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, look, what we know now is that the brain responds in not such a dissimilar way to our muscles. So... You know, the things, the kinds of things that can help us maintain our um, cognition, our healthy brain, are things like, you know, good nutrition, mm-hmm. you know, exercise, but also novelties, you know, mm-hmm. the novelty learning. So people, and that doesn't mean doing Sudoku, but it does mean this continuing education and being interested in new things. Mm-hmm. So really stimulating the brain to actually work in different ways. And just the same as we have a varied diet, it's important to actually challenge the brain in different ways. And there is good evidence now to say that, you know, the brain has capacity to learn. So, for example, you know, if someone um, had changes in their, in their cognition, in their brain activity at 70, 
then there's a good chance that they can actually remain functioning with, you know, good lifestyle, novelty, etc., mm -hmm. you know, for a number of more years. And that's very exciting. Mm -hmm. Give me some examples of novelty for our listeners who are wondering, what does that mean taking a different road home? Does that mean, you know, learning a new language? Can you give some examples sure. of what is that, what actually concrete does that mean? Sure. We know people that learn different languages, you know, have greater capacity. You know, we also know that people that go back to some different kind of education, you know, have new have 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 greater capacity, or learn a new skill. You know, woodworking for mm -hmm. me would be a new skill. Mm -hmm. You know, or um, you know, doing you know, um, learning botanical names for flowers, ah. or or you know, or reading architectural books. So things that you wouldn't wouldn't normally do. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's novelty learning. I see. I see. So even if, let's say, you were somebody who liked to take a bike ride, it would be not necessarily taking a different path, but trying a different exercise. That's um, right. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Try a different, you know, but it's the accumulation of these. It's the diet. It's the lifestyle. Mm -hmm. It's you know, meditation, it's, so it's a package, but this novelty effect that the brain tends to enjoy mm -hmm. is very important. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we're going to talk about in uh, March next year. So and that's be, exciting. And Okay, so you are you also um, helping to plan and organize this conference as well? Yes, that's our conference. We do it in partnership with our um, member organization in Denmark, Dane Age, and they have about 870,000 members in their organization, which uh -huh. is extraordinary. It sure is. Yeah. So, look, we're a very active NGO, mm -hmm. and uh, we, we really, you know, our vision is a, a world of healthy older people whose rights are protected and respected. So it's it's an exciting time in the field of aging and population aging. And are you uh, currently out of Toronto? Are you living in Toronto now? Yes, yes, I I'm see. An, yeah, I'm an Australian living in Toronto. The reason I ask is because I had the opportunity to interview some, well, you know, Angela Littleford, of course, mm, from Helping mm. Hand, and I learned about how South Australia has a real legacy of um, caring for elders in, in a progressive and very culturally sensitive way. Look, it, it certainly does. Um, South Australia does, but I think, you know, because... You know, Australia is, is based on a national model when it comes to aged care. Then what happens in South Australia is communicated around the country. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very good thing because lessons learned actually improves the ability to replicate and transfer good knowledge. Mm-hmm. So do, do you get caught up in trying to... Um, uh, look at policy and say, here's the data, look at all these researchers, look at this data, 
How do we get this to be implemented by governments? Is that part of your job? Yes, it is. It is. Yes. So tell me a little bit about how that (laughs) works. Well, one of our goals is to influence and help shape policy. So from time to time, we're called on governments to um, input into their policy um, development, but also we're often looking at a particular issue that's impacting older people. So for example, it could be improving vision health because they don't have access to affordable screening or in the rural and remote communities, people don't have access to healthcare systems. So what we do is that we um, often, in collaboration and partnership with other NGOs and academic institutions, we undertake some research, and then we work to develop policy positions and then work with government to inform Mm -hmm. the policy. We very much an organisation that partners and working with government. We see them as just needing as much help as they can, (laughs) you know, with information that's going to inform them as to the most effective policies. So what that might look like is testifying at the United Nations. Is that an example of how you might? Okay. Yes, we, we present statements at the United Nations, which are called interventions. And we also have side events on important issues. And just in July, we had a side event where we bring together um, representatives from member states as well as other NGOs on protecting the rights of older LGBT people. Mm -hmm. So that was held at the United Nations. That's a very bold thing Mm -hmm. to do that. Um, And we also often um, testify in Senate hearings. But then we often sit down with government officials and say, have you thought of this, this and this? So we do it formally as well as informally. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just trying to imagine this and I'm just wondering about what skills does one need to sit with a government official who has a million different policies and mm. pressures and all of these interests trying to juggle. What skills do, do you need to have a conversation that feels like you're getting somewhere, you're making an impact, and um, you're doing what you've come to do? You've got to be authentic to begin with. You've got to be there for the right reasons. And not only listen to what the government are saying and whether that's the minister or their advisers, but also read the nonverbal cues as well. Hmm. So you've got, you know, the way people sit, the way that people sort of roll their eyes or not, or and cue into what's going to be interesting to them. I go in with um, a very clear idea of the messages that I want to communicate and I make sure that they're communicated at a time when the minister or the government are listening. So it's not about going in and saying, I think you need to do ABC. Mm-hmm. It's about having a conversation. You know, It's about making this personable and memorable to them because they, as you said, They've got a million and one things to do. Mm -hmm. But are they going to 
remember that conversation. And that's the critical thing because they will then come back and ask further questions. So again, I'm I'm just struck by how you are, you know, immersed in this cutting edge research, but you're also saying that's all well and good, but I'm sitting with somebody and they're crossing their legs and rolling their eyes. I have to sort of pivot and and say, maybe we'll talk about something else now that you're, you know, you're saying that your skills in engaging people and connecting with people are are of primary importance. They're the most important thing in this world, aren't they? I mean, the the way that you approach somebody in Loblaws, the supermarket, is just as important as the way that you are with a government minister. Um, and I think sometimes we forget that ministers and government and they're just like you and me. Mm-hmm. They have families, they have problems, they have challenges. And it's for IFA to create an environment that's non-threatening, that's informative, and that actually helps them to do their job mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so these, I, you know, sometimes called soft skills, mm. have you always had those or have you had to... Um, learn and read. There's some TED Talks on them, you know, how to hold yourself and, and, and this. How have you gotten to be so masterful at, at this uh, connecting and this emotional intelligence, we could call it? It's just me. Um, I don't know how else to say it other mm. than I, I believe in what I, I believe I'm here to do a job. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm here to serve the community mm-hmm. and this is the vehicle that I've been given to serve the community at this time. I see. And so that's that the offers, most important thing. So that offers a real clarity to you that it's almost like you're a channel and you yes. just come in and say, this is what I've got to offer you. Let me see if I can help. I see. So that's very different than kind of selling, you know, the the benefits of being involved with the IFA's um, agenda. That's right. I you're quite right. Look, I I I mean, the IFA is a vehicle for communication, and I help guide that pipeline through who I am and what I do. And engagement and relationships and being authentic and having integrity are fundamental to the job and they're intrinsic to who I am. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's just really fascinating to me. I, I you know, I did of course as a psychotherapist that making connections and helping people feel understood um, is very important. But at this level of scholarship, I think it, if if you don't mind me saying, I think it, it might be rare for people to have both those lobes running at the same time. <laughs> I don't know if that's the impression you get um, with researchers, but sometimes they're great at doing the problem solving, but somehow conveying it in a personally accessible way is less skilled. I I think you have to be vulnerable. You have to be okay to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a former academic, a pure academic, 
um, you know, one can uh, be detached from the humanness mm-hmm. of of the data, mm-hmm. but to really be able to communicate and to help influence messages and policies, it's imperative that you are vulnerable and exposed in some way mm-hmm. to who you are as a person, mm-hmm. um, because people people want to share. You know, they want to communicate in a meaningful way. But, you know, un- unless you, the receiver of the message, is prepared to to um, let your guard down and be open, I think, you know, the, the language is different, you know, from one relationship to the next. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, I and I talk to my staff about um, foreign languages. You can be talking to a government official, but if you actually don't know the language that they hear, then it's very difficult to get your message across. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be in tune with the different nuances of, of the language and the culture that you're working with. Mm-hmm. So when you're working with different governments, do you try to learn about which, what is culturally appropriate uh, before you go and speak to officials? Is that Do you study up on that beforehand? Look, certainly it's an important way of being. So if I'm working in Japan, there are cultural protocols that are very important for me to know and practice before going. Um, but I think it's also sometimes it becomes second nature. The, you can actually get a sense of the cultural protocols. Um, and I think you've got to be sensitive to the environment in which you're going into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you finding that there's a pretty um, even split uh, in, in some of these higher up government officials you're meeting with throughout the world, are you speaking with both women and men, or are you still primarily speaking with men? Uh, look, the split is is not even um, in different different countries. You'll have a different um, split. Um, in Japan, you know, it's predominantly men, mm-hmm. um, and I, you know. We still pay lip service, Nicole, to women in positions, in executive positions in government or in the private sector. Um, And I think that um, society is failing to understand um, the contribution that, um, you know, women and men make in, in their gender perspectives. I think it's it's it is quite different. Both are incredibly important and valuable, um, but I do think that um, women are not um, in positions of um, uh, importance um, from time to time. So uh, it's interesting. I, I'm thinking about you uh, interacting with government officials, talking about ageism, mm. where there may also be sexism going on at the same time yes um Mm -hmm. you know all of the isms Mm -hmm. you know we we seem to have this intersection of isms at the moment um and i think we've got to be very careful in terms of how we characterize situations um 
and I've always gone into situations being well aware of the isms, um, but confident in what I have to say and who I am as a human being. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a lovely message. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners who are primarily women, post-middle age, trying to figure out and navigate this whole metamorphosis? Anything else you'd like to share? My personal journey has never been smooth. However, through the, the twists and turns and ups and downs, it's made me the person that I am today. And I know tomorrow there'll be subtle changes because something else has come into my life. And, you know, there's, there's never a time that I, I haven't embraced the opportunity or the situation. Um, but it takes boldness and courage. And it also takes, you know, people to stand by your side and walk with you um, because walking with others um, it gives you strength to make decisions and move forward mm-hmm. yes I can I can totally see that you're talking about an inner strength but it's very important you also need your people and your tribe yes you do you do and that tribe may be one maybe two maybe different different members of the tribe for different things mm-hmm. um, but it's also you reaching out um, you know as I did today to a friend who's who's moving to the United States to just say I'm just checking in mm-hmm. how are you doing mm-hmm. um, because often we don't want um, an intervention we don't want someone to do something but we just it's helpful to know that person is there or those people are there because mm-hmm. that's that's the invisible support environment that makes you who you are, too. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for being such an inspiration. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, seeing you moderate, and I really, uh, it was so wonderful to be at the IFA conference. And, uh, you know, of course, the listeners didn't see this, but, people wear tags identifying where they're from and their names. Mm. And Mm. it was just, I was just looking at so many flags Mm. and so many people um, that, you know, our worlds would never have uh, come together had it not been um, at the conference in Toronto. And uh, it was, uh, it was quite something. Well, it was a pleasure that, um, that you were able to come and be part of this conference. And I hope that um, you think about 2020, if not before, but you can count on the IFA. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much, Jane. Okay. All the best, Nicole. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at nicolechristina.com. And please consider becoming a patron of the show. You will get access to exclusive bonuses and you will be part of the Zestful Aging community. Keep us going strong. 
Go to patreon.com slash zestful aging. See you next time for another episode of Zestful Aging.